This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, I have Rachel Lauren of, guess what the name is, folks? Diversified Now. Man, she's already diversifying the game, and that's what her business is all about. Diversity, inclusion, equity, all those things that we hear so much in corporate, but a lot of times, you guys, they don't look like her. They don't have the experience that she has either. You know She's going to give us the game on what and how she does Diversified Now. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming. Man, let the people know, because people always hear, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I do diversity work. I do this. I do that. Everybody's diversity work is not the same. So, you know, what is your focus and what is your why when you tell us all of this? Well, first, I want to say I'm one of three partners, and my other two partners are also Black women. Um, and I think that that's important to note in a world that, you know, professionally, we're underrepresented. We're underrepresented. We don't have um, seats at the table like we should. Um, our voices are often just not heard. And so it was really important for us to come together and establish something that we can, you know, assist communities in, but be Black women, because who better? That's personally how I feel. We understand what it means to be overlooked. Um, and so we enter into this work with a certain level of passion, right? And acknowledgement. Um, I'll say that my career began in food and beverage. I uh, managed different restaurants. I entered into kind of marketing, um, leading teams, working in hospitality. And then I entered into, into tech. So I worked for various tech companies and I actually was in sales. Um, and everywhere I went, I was token. And everywhere I went, I was asked to um, answer diversity issues, to become the expert. I was expected to know what it meant to um, implement DNI right, into businesses. And that's the story for many of us. That's what you'll find. Um, I believe that, you know, when things happened this summer, there has been with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there has been an extreme kind of like change and shift that people have had. They want to now acknowledge that this is more than a side desk job. They're starting to realize that this is a full time position. Um, but I'll say how I got here was really birthed in. I kept doing this. It kept showing up. I became the expert because I've lived through it. Um, and that's really, really where it came from. Now, you know, some folks will say, okay, I mean, you're doing diversity, makes sense. You know, folks will say, oh, we've heard this over and over. But, you know, what qualifies you? Because I always say you have an unfair advantage as a Delta on how to knock down doors. And so, you know, you are the token, but how can you show corporations, especially where their flaw is, how they're being biased, racist, any type of ism, you know, when you go into corporate and, and with that, you know, what is the biggest mistake you see corporations making? Well, I think when we talk about diversity, we have to recognize that it represents a lot of different things, right? So sexual preference, um, race, religion, ethnicity, there are a lot of things that contribute to diversity. What we've learned, especially in recent times, you know, individuals that weren't willing to admit this, what we've learned is that race is the, the thing that has to be talked about first. 
because I can enter into a room as a woman and know that I have disadvantages because of my gender. However, I enter into a room as a black woman and now I have disadvantages because of my gender as well as my race. So what I would say is race is the, is the first step of, of my work. It's the uncomfortable conversation that I require people to have because you're not gonna understand diversity. You're not gonna understand equity and you definitely are not going to, going to be able to build inclusive environments if we don't first go there. So when you ask why me, it's because I've had a few strikes, right? Against me before I came into a room. I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm Afro-Latina. So when I enter into a space, there are three things that I'm always, I'm already having to overcome. And so I understand and I see um, disparities in ways that a lot of individuals don't. And I have passion in, in ways that a lot of individuals don't. And, you know, when you mention the Afro-Latina folks who are listening, which the majority of the audience is listening and not watching, but people might see this and say, oh, she, I didn't know she was Afro-Latina. And then what is Afro-Latina? Because some folks will say, como es tu espanol? And if you don't respond to them back in the accent that they want, um, oh, okay, well, she learned Spanish after, or she's not from Colombia, or she's not from, you know, Panama. So, you know, how, how do you balance that and experience? Tell us. Well, I think the first thing is, again, going back to race and ethnicity. The problem is that a lot of people don't understand the difference between the two. Um, and so we have to realize that race is a social construct and it's completely built around what someone looks like. When you see someone, the physical characteristics that you associate with a, a particular group. Um, so I am a black woman. And when you see me, to your point, you'll identify me as a black woman and I want you to. When you talk to me, then I can start talking to you about my ethnicity. And so ethnicity is really more so about, you know, your language, the culture that you um, identify with, the food that you eat, um, the religion that you choose, all of those things relate to ethnicity. And so what happens is a lot of people think that ethnicity and race are the same thing instead of realizing that it's separate. So when individuals have arguments about um, people within the Latinx community standing up and saying, I'm Black, they can't. Because if they racially present as a Black person, then they deal with all of the things that come along with being a Black person in our society. So I think that's the first thing. Um, I have to teach individuals when I go into organizations and coach you know, people what it means to ask questions. And so what we are trained to do is just assume. As a, as a society, we assume. We see people and we just say that's what they are, right? We stop at race and we don't have the conversations to really enable people to self-identify. This is what I see you as. And I know that you are going to have to deal with certain things when you walk down the street because everyone else sees you as that same thing. But what do you identify as and what does that mean to you? So I am very vocal about who I am and I am authentically me all the time. When I walk into a room, you're gonna see me as a black woman and you're gonna see me as a powerful black woman. And then when we have conversation, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about my experiences and who I am and why it's important to me. And do you speak Spanish? I don't, I don't. Uh, let's, let's talk about that because a lot of folks who weren't taught Spanish to the Latin community, sometimes it's like an abomination. And how do you, and they'll ask, well, how do you then, I identify when you don't know the end is so how, how how has that journey been because i find that to be kind of hurtful especially 
especially in America, when someone, you know, even if they look Mexican and they don't speak Spanish or the Spanish isn't perfecto, people will look at them like you're not as Mexican, even though I know your mom and your dad. So are, what, what are your people? Where are they from? Donde eres? Um, so my mother was born and raised in Puerto Rico, Bayamón. Um, is where she is from. She um, actually moved all over. My grandfather was in the army, so she lived everywhere. She lived in Italy. Um, she ended up meeting my dad in Missouri when she was in college and identifies as Afro-Latina, um, married into a Black family, right, and um, was really apart from the people that she kind of grew up with. My dad's family became her family. Um, I think the thing for her was, you know, you're young, you have two kids, you work full time, um, and you're the only person that speaks Spanish in your house. So it was about being able to, you know, find the time to teach me, and she didn't. What's going to throw you for a loop is that my mother is a Spanish teacher, <laughs> or she was a Spanish teacher, and she was one for over 50 years. So we, we, I'll be honest, we have arguments because I'm like, I don't understand how you taught everybody else's kids and you didn't teach me. And yeah, there were times where um, I felt less than as a Puerto Rican woman, not knowing that. Um, and there have been times where I've had very hurtful interactions with individuals that, you know, are upset that I can't speak Spanish. I've had people cuss me out in Spanish when they see me because they, they actually can tell like, oh, you look Afro-Latina. How do you not speak and start speaking Spanish and cussing me out in Spanish? Um, so it is a, it's a complex world, but I think what we have to realize is no people um, are monolithic. I mean, we, the reality is as black people, right? Like we are told oftentimes you sound white. That doesn't make them less black. Like you might have this quote unquote dialect that people like to relate to white people. But when you walk down the street before you open your mouth, you still have to deal with your blackness. And so um, me not speaking Spanish doesn't make me less Puerto Rican. I still relate to the culture. I still relate to the experiences. I still have an understanding that individuals that might not be a part of the culture won't have. Um, I still cook. <laughs> there are a lot of other things that relate me to that. And sure, I don't speak Spanish. I speak English. My mom didn't teach me. It is what it is. Well, well, cooking is a major, you know, <laughs> culture, how cultures blend. So let me ask this question because it's one of my favorites. Are you a fan and can you make pinchos? Am I a fan? A fan of <laughs> pinchos. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and I want to say this because the holidays just ended. Um, you know, growing up, I always had Thanksgiving with my father's side of the family. So we had soul food, greens, dressing, yams, you know, the, the whole nine. And I learned how to cook from my granny. So I know how to do all of that. But then at Christmas, we had Puerto Rican cuisine. So my mother would cook and, you know, my abuela, when she was living, she, she would cook and she taught us that. And so now I'm like very, if I don't have those two meals, you know, on those holidays, for me, it's not the holiday. One year, my mom took me to Florida to visit one of my aunts and she had made oros con pollo and she had all the, you know, fixings. And I was mad. It was Thanksgiving. I was mad. I'm like, this is not what I eat on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's such amazing. And, you know, a lot of cultures, you know, black culture, wherever you're from, Spanish culture, the mixed, you know, you, you can bring history and say, this is why this it's bigger than slavery, folks, of why we all eat the same things. We may just call it something different, have different seasonings. So, you know, that's one thing that in music and, you know, love can 
make make us all unite. Mm-hmm. With diversified now, how much of that Afro Latina experience can you know are corporations interested in? Because I know going through you know Rotary clubs and different things, it's always you know black folk, black folk, or it's gay, but. Puerto Ricans, Colombians, this, especially in corporate, especially women, they don't really get talked about. There's not a lot of fuss on to make things equal and right them because one has their issues. And even there are certain people who are minorities who will judge a beautiful woman like yourself and say, she's just here for the eye candy. She's just here for the promotion. She's not here for her ideas. She doesn't even speak Spanish. So she doesn't care about the Latinos and Latinas. So, you know, how much of that are you seeing their issues being tackled? Um, so, you know, it, for me, I have to be conscious when I enter into spaces about all people. Um, one of the things that I like to do and my company does, we do cultural assessments and surveys. Um, we have surveys that we'll send out to all team members where we, one, want them to self-identify, but also give us information that they might not verbally be comfortable giving um, so that they have a safe space to do it. And then we have uh, one-on-one assessments with individuals. So we'll have like meetings with them and give them the opportunity if there is something that they'd like to speak to, to speak about it. Um, Every I would say company is different. Every organization is different. I've been in places that actually do have a really strong Latinx population and understanding of what that means. And then in places that don't. Um, And so I think it just depends on where you go, but it is about recognizing every aspect of diversity in every place that you go into. Um, For me specifically, believe it or not, I, I would say that the hardest conversations I've had to have are not with people outside of the Latinx community. It's definitely within um, because to your points that I think you've made here, there are a lot of people that are just unaccepting and race plays a role within the Latinx community. And that's why I really want people to understand what blackness means and what whiteness means, because, you know, within the Latinx community, there's still racism, right? Like we can both be Puerto Rican and you see me as black and you identify as white. And so we have the same exact issues that black and white people have in America, um, and so there's there's that complexity as well. Well, and when you talk about the issues in the Latin community, there's issues also in the Asian community. But if I focus just on the Latin community, do not get a Mexican and a Spaniard in the room together to have an argument. You're going to hear the argument not stop until people are talking about the gold that was stolen and, you know, the, or the opportunity that was given to them, you know, they're the, the people. So it's just interesting. Cause I mean, that, that can be a fight and that's probably why we don't see too many boxing matches between Mexico and Spain. Um, you know, because it, it's, it's very just intense and the same thing with Asians, you know, don't get Japanese and Chinese or Filipinos, you know, we'd all love to just get along, but we do make these inside or even of our own culture, black folk, you know, you got your bourgeoisie, you got your people who say, hey, I'm broke or I relate to being broke. I came up broke and I'm never going to change, never going to put on a suit. How do you get companies to work out people's personal issues that their mother and father um, brought on? Um, so I think, again, it's about creating safe spaces. Um, And safe spaces oftentimes lead to individuals feeling like they belong. 
Um, one thing that I think is extremely valuable for a company to start to implement would be employee resource groups um, done the right way. Because you'll see that there are employee resource groups for specific demographics that are unfortunately run by individuals that don't even fall within the demographic. And then it's like, how are you speaking to blackness and you're not black, right? Like, how are you speaking to the Asian American experience and you're not Asian? Um, so I think um, creating spaces and empowering individuals who actually identify as what the group is um, to lead those spaces really does help. Um, what I have found, you know, one of the companies that I work for, we've implemented ERGs and we do have individuals that identify leading and, you know, there's conversations that we do allow allies to come in and listen, but we are very cognizant of, of finding time to separate the two and then empowering the leaders of these ERGs to have conversations with leadership about what they're hearing, not just their own personal experience, but now that they're leading a group of individuals that might think like them or feel like them, you know, what is it that they're all saying? So when you commit to creating employee resource groups and understand the, the service that they can have within your company, then you're also committing to hearing the voices and then taking the things that are said back to the table to kind of institute change. I love diversity work. I have felt that because I am a black man running a consulting and PR firm, sometimes when we go after government work, people expect you just to go after diversity work only. And I say my love lock in my hair can do a lot more. This, this, this wisdom. Do you ever find yourself going into corporations and seeing people you know, the, maybe it's, let's say black people, hey, we started something and then it was overtaken by the Asians or overtaken by now we have, you know, more white people than we have black people in this group. And I saw it a whole bunch in Seattle, Seattle, the whole city corporate, they they need an overhaul, but they're in that get out stage where someone needs to flash them. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm personally just done <laughs> um, enjoying this hot weather. But have you seen that? And can you you know, somehow maybe if someone who's in that position are the majority are there, maybe they're just a the boss and like, oh, we didn't know. OK, yeah, black people did. Now we have a whole bunch of, you know, Mazungus and, and others um, running it, saying minority, minority, taking out the black part. Yeah. So, well, two, you touch on two things here. Um, people of color <laughs> and the grouping <laughs> that that creates and then um, allyship. Um, in certain situations and the people that are not identifying members kind of taking over in um, certain settings. And so what I'll say is, I think the first thing with allyship is that it's important for the people that you are trying to be an ally for identify you as an ally. Like they need to see you as one. You can't just self-identify and then boom, you're an ally. Like I've got to actually recognize you as that and have conversations and trust that when you do speak for me, that it's going to be something that I actually agree with. Um, what tends to happen is people are like, I'm ally, hear me roar, but we have had no conversation. And so you're speaking from your own experience, which in itself kind of leads back to privilege and audacity and supremacy, right? So um, definitely when you create spaces and you allow allies in, there has to be some sort of a system where you say, right now we want to hear you and we want you to contribute. And then maybe there are certain instances where you just listen because this is a learning opportunity for you. And in order for you to actually accurately represent, you've got to hear us. 
Um, we do, however, need people to step up and be allies that we identify as such in certain situations. Um, there are unfortunately still rooms that white people can get into that black people cannot, right? And so we need certain white people that we can identify as allies to go into those rooms and speak and trust that they're going to speak for us in the way that they said they would. So I think that's one. The second part that you brought up is the people of color grouping, which I understand that there are some shared experiences between people of color. However, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't separate what people of color means in certain situations. So my experience as a black woman does not always look the same as someone who was Asian. And so, yeah, there are there can be some similarities in some situations, but a lot of times what happens in companies is we do group minority together and then we even group representation under minority together. So when we say, oh, we have X amount of people at the company that are people of color. Well, what does that really mean? So now you're saying that you have 20 percent, you know, here that represent people of color, but only one percent are African-American. Only two percent are um, Latinx. So I think that we have to talk about that in a lot of instances as well. Well, how do you go into a corporation and then maybe they're doing that part right where they say, look, we have, you know, this um, we have something in a safe place for black folk, but the black person that they have is so far in the get out such a. Uh, Sambo and has no backbone and is doing their, you know, whatever, not even that the company might not be racist, might have no, maybe had the best, you know, intentions, but it's who they pick. Again, something we see in corporate all the time, they get the most uh, lily liver. I'm trying to find from the old school word that your grandmother might use um, type of people that can't even stand up. So it's all right, I'm my boss. We're going to get this right. And so how do you go into a corporation and say, this person you have chosen is the worst candidate? <laughs> Well, I think, um, so that relates again, back to blackness versus whiteness. This isn't me talking about um, skin versus skin. It's what that um, idea of skin has presented us in, in forms of systems. So be clear that there are individuals that are black that still sometimes find ways to benefit from systems that were set up and based in whiteness. And so I think when you go into organizations where you see maybe individuals that don't represent the greater picture of a group of minorities, then you're actually having to look at the systems and you're having to look at the things that are based in whiteness and have a conversation of what that means for your organization and for society, then it, it just moves past the people. It moves directly into how something operates and why it operates that way. All right. Are you able to make that, you know, as a company, a, a third party consultant come in and say, say that, or is that something that you can't control? Yeah, I am. Um, well, first of all, I think that there is a misconception that because we are consultants that we take every client. So um, I first want to state that I have the authority and the ability to say no. 
Um, and we don't work with everybody. And, and it's not always just based on them. I think that you have to have in, in partnership in DEI work, a relationship and an understanding and a belief in each other. And sometimes there isn't that. So there have been people that we've met that we know that this is 100% performative. And the way that you want us to show up for you is it is nothing about changing your organization or, or mentalities. It's really just about giving you a face and what we won't be is that. So I think that's the, the kind of the first step of that. But I also recognize that, you know, there are always individuals within organizations that have a farther road to travel than than some others. And, and that's the work that we signed up for. Um, so. And you're in Austin, Texas right now, but able to go global if you guys have needs. Um, you know, it's nothing but a, a plane trip. Business or first class, mandatory. Yeah, um, I'm. And um, one of my partners is in Chicago. My other partner is in Austin and we do do business globally. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, with, with that is Austin is one of those cities. I, I lived in Texas for four years. I'd run to Austin just to feel normal. Like, why? I'm not even a, uh, you know, hey, it reminds me of Berkeley. And I'm like, you know, don't you, you get me on the piano at the dueling piano bar. You know, it's just it gives you that. Eye. So is this an issue still in a place like Austin? Um, it's an issue everywhere. I don't think that there's anywhere that it isn't an issue. I want to also be clear that I'm from Chicago, born and raised. I've been in Austin for a few years, but um, I actually started out when I came to Texas in Houston and I left Houston for Austin for the reason that you just made. <laughs> um, Austin for me felt just a little bit more like a place that I wanted to be in. I think originally I was like, Houston's a big city. You likely will be able to relate to Houston in a way that you know, you could in Chicago. And I, it, that was not true. Um, so sorry, I hope you can't hear my dog, but she's going crazy. It's all part of the journey. It's all good. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I ended up, you know, here. Um, Austin has a lot of things to work on, but I cannot tell you that there's a city that doesn't. Okay. And have you done any international work? Um, for DEI work? No. Okay. okay, it sounds like there may be something else behind that. You might be like a, a movie star somewhere else. What international work have you done? Um, well, I do, you know, I've interviewed and um, had conversations with individuals in other countries, especially as it relates to DEI work. So just like you and I are sitting here and talking, people want to talk to me. So that happens. Um, and then just as it relates to kind of contribution work that I do personally for my own brand, The Only Rachel. So... That's why I kind of paused a little bit. But Diversified hasn't done international work now. Okay, well, let's go into, you know, Only Rachel, because I also saw you on the um, African Diaspora News Channel. And I was telling you before the interview, you know, great job. Um, what What is Only Rachel? And, and then we're going to go into, you know, your you might have past TV experience as good as you are. So <laughs> what, what, tell us about Only Rachel. <laughs> I don't. Um, you know, it's just the opportunity for me as a individual person to speak about what I'm passionate about, what I know and what I want to change. So um, I'm known as the conscious influencer. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that um, my 
tags on everywhere are at the only Rachel. And it really is just my platform to speak about social injustice um, and to use my voice, my circle of influence to make changes. And so um, that's what I do. I also coach individuals so that if you go on my website, you'll see that there's a booking page. And a lot of people are attempting to figure out how to make an impact and where to start. And so I coach people because the reality is we all have influence. We just have to figure out where it is and how to use it. Um, I think I'll use the movement right now as it relates to Black lives. Um, and I think that a lot of people are really just focused on what they can do in the streets and criminal justice reform, you know, and things that are specific to that. And all of that is important. But I think when we talk about Black life, we have to realize that there are so many different facets and, and parts of, of Black life. And so we have to be represented everywhere. There has to be people that are actually impacting and influencing in every area of life. So I don't care if it's within education, within um, religion, whatever it is, like we need people to be influencers, impactors, activists, advocates in all areas. Um, I'm an adoptive mother. So I was a foster to adopt mom. I fostered children for a while, specifically minority children, and I adopted three Black children. And so I definitely use my platform to speak out about that as well. There just aren't enough of us doing that. There aren't enough of us stepping up for our children that are within the system. When I was licensed um, to foster, one of the first things that I learned was that in the state of Texas, there's this, there's this idea that there are more minorities in the system than white children, but it's actually not true. It's just that there are more minorities that are left in the system, which tells me that there are more white families that come and, come and step up and say, I wanna adopt a white child. So it was, um, my focus to say like, I hope all children have a home, all children need love. However, for me specifically, I wanna impact my community and this is the, one of the ways I'm gonna do it, so. Well, you know, talking about that, I just did an interview a, a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, because of my background in mental health and working um, for the, the government in that area. Um, for, you know, children's protective rights and all that CPS. Um, and it is difficult to adopt, you know, whether you're doing it in this country or Uganda. I mean, just horror stories. And I, I, I have my own, you know, sometimes crazy hypothesis why a child can get so used to a home. And right when they try to do the final stage of, you know, making it stable. Nope. Got to pull them out. So how yeah. was that, you know, journey for you? And do you have any tips for people to, you know, make it any easier? Because we know the government is not. Yeah, um, it's definitely not an easy process. And I'm not going to ever lie and say that it is. I will say that every child is different. And so that means every process is unique, because the reason why they're in the system is going to contribute to how it kind of goes and what ends up happening. Um, I can tell you that my adoption for my son was extremely difficult. My son was born um, biologically, his parents were in prison. So he had never met them. He immediately was in the system. He didn't have any recollection. He went to a family member and was removed from the family member. When we um, adopted him, you know, we were, we thought that this was going to be an easy process. His parents are in prison. They're not getting out anytime soon. But what ended up happening was his father contested from prison, the, um, his rights being revoked. And so it, it just prolonged the process. It was a whole thing. It cost money. We had to get lawyers. Whereas with my daughters, it was six months, which is how long you're supposed to have, you know, them in your home before you can adopt an instant. So I think, you know, it just depends. My advice would be one, um, do your research. So I'll, you know, figure out what 
laws are in your state, how your system works within your state, because every state is different. Do your research on agencies, because agencies are supposed to serve as the people that advocate for you as a foster family. So you want to make sure that you have the right one and that you can trust the people that are going to be working with you. I recommend working with an agency instead of just going through the state because they do know people and they know things and they can help. Um, and if you are going the route of fostering to adopt, because there are different ways in which you can adopt, you can just enter in for straight adoption, you can do foster to adopt, you can do respite. But if you enter in as foster to adopt, then understand that there's no um, promise that the kids that come into your home are going to become adoptable. So be prepared to let them go because reunification is always their goal. Um, and therapy. In between kids, go to therapy because it's a loss. And there is real trauma that comes with with um, having these kids in your home. So, wow, yeah, definitely. I I sometimes think you know, depending on what organization, um, especially like group home type settings, uh, the children are the money. So sometimes they don't want to let them go. They don't mind if you take them for a little bit, but bring them right back or give them to a friend so they can be recycled. And that's why kids will go to an average of like twenty five or thirty homes if they stay them and and you know that's an ins they get institutionalized like a prisoner um they're used to certain things a lot of our people don't adopt they'll say oh well we don't have money or i want my own children is there anything that did you always know you wanted to be adopted parent and does you know having your own children you know, is that going to take away from your efforts in the adoption? Like, hey, I got my own kids now. I can't adopt every kid that, you know, comes my way or that I hear. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be smart about what you can and can't do. Just even if you were biologically, you know, having your children, what's what is your like in like when when is too many kids, too many kids? I think that that has to be a question that you ask yourself no matter what. Some people can have 10 and, and do fine. And others are like, my limit is two. And, and you have to be smart about that. And so for me, I did close my doors. I fostered for a while. I adopted these, the three children that I have adopted are my focus. And so for them, I think what's best is not to bring other kids in, at least right now. I don't know what the future holds. Um, so I'm not saying that it won't happen, but right now I need to be there for them. Um, and I can tell you, you know, there are people that ask questions like, don't you want to carry your own or don't you feel like you'll feel slighted and all these things. And one, I want to say to people listening that that's rude as hell. Don't ask people that. But um, I don't feel like I've missed anything at all. You could not tell me I didn't birth those children. And if you go look at my page and see them, you actually would never know if I didn't tell you either. Um so they were always meant to be mine. Whether we have blood or not, our spirits are connected and they, they were meant to find each other. Um, and it's crazy because the day my daughters came, I opened the door and my oldest daughter was like, hi, mommy. <laughs> Instantly. And it, it's just been, it's been like that. Now I know everyone's story isn't the same. So I don't want to sell this idea that every situation will be like that. But, and I was blessed. I get that. But I can tell you that loving them is something that I was made to do and I don't feel slighted at all. So, and going back to your rude comment, you know, I think people forget that some folks can't for whatever reason have right. children exactly. and, and it's none of your business for me to tell you my medical history. Now I come from a family of women and everyone has a child out of 13, uh, 
uncles and aunts. Everyone has a child except one. But I have that one would tell you in a second, you need to mind your business. And if you don't, that 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 Oakland, that Oconda could come out. But <laughs> it's it, yeah, it is none of none of people's business. And and again, your feeling is your feeling. I have a lot of uh people that I mentee and I say it's a lifetime type mentorship whether it's pay or no pay because yeah. I'm sewing into their life and I don't have boys I have two girls but those are my boys <laughs> and you know I don't call them that because when they're grown men that's kind of weird and they ain't got to call me daddy that's that's, <laughs> that's that's doing too much right yeah. but if they need something they know even if it's just game wisdom a connection um sometimes it's money but yeah i definitely get that now you just mentioned which you could repeat the same thing that you just said but i ask all my guests what is their community give back that they are doing or that they want to do in the future so please let us know yeah so definitely i think the biggest thing my passion is is activism and advocacy as it relates to foster care to to adoption and to minority children um and as it relates to black people and i unapologetically say that um and so again when you follow me the only you'll see that um one of the things that i do outside of the influencer coaching is i have a club called the conscious club that people can sign up for it's a mailing uh, list and i send out uh, weekly emails where i um, am kind of updating people on the things that are happening within the community but also assisting them with finding ways that they can do impact right from their house um, so you're looking to get started trying to figure out how to be more conscious and what to do well i'm about to give you something to do every week so you can't say that you that there's nothing right in front of you um, so for me, it's just whatever I need to do to make sure that life for my people and for these children, um, are better, that systems are disrupted, um, then, then that's what I'm going to do. So I can, I think that's my answer. No, that that's great. And you know, the experiences you go through of, I don't know how old your oldest is, how old is he or she? She's six. She's six. Okay. So you haven't yet experienced like that item that you just knew was going to be in the refrigerator. I have a 10 and a seven year old. And sometimes I just, I, I don't know how my, my pops and my mom did it because it was uh, four of us plus cousins and everything around, but to go into that fridge and not have that item, you said, man, what happened to that Haagen-Dazs? Hold on. All of the bars, all three or four or whatever Haagen-Dazs gives you, they're gone. You know, you still have to go through those experiences uh, just as a parent. So now that's a, that's a beautiful, um, I love it. I love it. Now, do you have a book or, you know, any plans on a book coming out? Right now, I don't. Right now, I don't. But I um, am always open to contributing. So if people um, are looking for a writer, that is something that I do and I can do. My actual degree is in English, so <laughs> I can't do it. But right now, I don't have plans. Okay. And anything, um, you know, in the film arena, I know, again, we mentioned the, you know, contribution to the African diaspora, but is TV, you know, film, is that a passion of yours? I can't say that it's a passion, but I won't also say that it's not an interest. Again, if it's going to be in alignment with my brand and what I support, then I'm always open to discuss it. Okay. And this, this question, and it may be my last, but I, I want you to give the young women out there some game because you 
could do anything that you want, you know, internally, but you could also, I mean, you, you could be Beyonce, right? And, and you could do all the things that you see on entertainment. And right now we're seeing people wanting to be so in front of the camera just because they are a beautiful person and they want to, you know, show everything. And it seems like you were raised where I just look like this, but it's not who I am. And I, I just want you to kind of tap in and tell people because I can't do that. Um, my, my focus has always been on my knowledge, whatnot. I know I have a, a stunning, you know, exterior, but it's not like um, that's what I've been judged off. And I think a lot of times women especially can be judged off. Oh, wow. She's beautiful. She can do whatever she wants. And so how do you control that? And, and how do you put that out there where that energy is just so balanced? Well, you know, one, I don't want to, um, I want to acknowledge that beauty bias is a real thing. Being in DEI work, I know that that's a real thing. Um, and sometimes it is not intentional. It's unconscious. That's why unconscious bias work is a thing. And that's why we talk about it and we train. So yes, beauty bias is real. And so I won't ever um, ignore the experiences of other people that have unfortunately had to deal with what that meant for them. Um, in a negative way. So I do acknowledge that. But what I will say is we all have something. Um, me being a woman is still something that I have to work through and have to always overachieve and prove myself, myself in, in situations, um, being a Black woman also, right? So I think that the reality is you don't know someone's story um, unless you are them. And you don't know the things that they've had to overcome unless you are them. So I, yes, I do have to still overcome my own obstacles. Um, and I am underestimated all the time, just like a lot of people are. Um, I do not apologize for the knowledge that I have because I earned it, because I study for it, because, um, you know what I'm saying? I've educated myself to do that. So I don't apologize for that. I don't apologize for what I look like. Um, I think the reality is what I would tell any woman is be unapologetically you and live in whatever that means and understand that when you recognize that being unapologetically you unlocks a certain power, you'll then see that you're able to accomplish a lot of things that you might not have um, ever imagined you'd be able to, but you can well, that's that's great game. And, you know, I, I'm raising two girls, London and Sydney dot com. And I always tell them. Don't be a pretty idiot. Study, read, don't, you know, what you're seeing right now in this entertainment, it's all fake. Don't be a pretty idiot. And they just laugh at me and say, oh, daddy. And I say, yeah, I know I'm funny, but, you know, I need you guys to boss up and queen up always. Queen up, y'all. Y'all hear that? So, Rachel, I thank you for coming on and giving the game. Do you want to leave the people with anything? I do. I truly appreciate you for having me on the show. Um, you, listen, I want everyone out there that owns a business, that works in a business, um, that manages within a business to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not something that you talk about one day and forget about tomorrow. It really does need to be in the fabric of your organization. So if you need some assistance in that area, please visit www.diversifiednow.com and we would be happy to enter and to help you um, with that. And again, visit me at theonlyrachel.com as well as on all social media at The Only Rachel. I look forward to connecting and assisting you with influencing change. 
Links will be in the description, folks. Make sure you share this information. Somebody you know needs to hear this, even if it's one person. One person share it, another person share it, because this is the type of game that is, you know, you're not going to hear this on your local radio. That's not the intention of local radio. It's to entertain you. This is to educate you as well as be as entertaining as possible. So, Rachel, thank you for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.